You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and wherever you're listening from, it's great to have you with us. And if you're new to Book Off, well, a warm, warm welcome. We hope you enjoy this new series, as well as all of our older episodes, which are available to listen to for free whenever you want. And to all our regular listeners who've been with us through thick and thin, our hugs and heartfelt thanks as always. It's great to have you with us too. Right then, on with our episode. And today, I'm joined by two titans of the book and film industries. My first guest is one of the world's most popular storytellers, having sold more than 40 million books worldwide. You can count them. Her novels have all been Sunday Times bestsellers and are published in 120 countries. She's the founder of the Save the Libraries Project, a non-profit which supports libraries and library programming, which I am very much a supporter of. And recently her novel Pieces of Her was made into a Netflix series. Here to tell us about her brand new novel, Girl Forgotten, it's Karen Slaughter. Hello, Karen. Hello. Lovely to have you with us all the way from that there, America. And my second guest is a celebrated screenwriter and one of my favourites, actually, in all honesty, who's written more than 25 feature films. These include Jurassic Park, you might have heard of it, Death Becomes Her, Carlito's Way, Mission Impossible and Panic Room, to name just a few. He's also the author of two novels, Cold Storage and his brand new book, Aurora, which we'll be talking about today. David Cap, welcome to Book Off. Thank you, Joe. Nice to be here. And I should do the virtual intros here. Karen, David, David, Karen, both in the States, but both very much uh, in different parts of the US, I believe. Yes, I, I believe. I don't know where you are, Karen. I'm in Atlanta. I'm in uh, California for the moment. I live in New York. Aha, there we go. And uh, I don't believe you've met before, but um, you'll be firm friends by the end of this record, I'm sure, or um, enemies, depending on how the book off goes and how competitive you are. Um, So over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to talk about your brand new novels. We're going to talk a little bit about TV adaptations, a little bit about films. We're going to get some reading recommendations from you. And of course, we'll do the book off where each of you is going to tell us about a book you love that you think all of us should read. Um, Firstly, Karen, though, if I could come to you and talk about um, Girl Forgotten Out, am I right in thinking the inspiration for this new novel came when you were actually on the set for this Netflix adaptation of Pieces of Her, which we'll talk about in a minute, but is is that where the inspiration for this novel came? Well, it was actually reading the first uh, script for the pilot, because I really, when I write standalones, I think it's really a standalone. I'm not one of these sneaky, well, let's see if people like it, and I'll make it a series sort of writers. But um, I I just started really thinking about the characters in the script and, and thought, maybe there's another story to tell about Andrea, because she starts off in the the book, and I'll speak to the book because the the series is a little different, just as this kind of um, person that 
people my age generally hate because she's, you know, she's a millennial, but she's having a really hard time being an adult. And she's still living with her mom and she's, you know, in this crappy career and she's covered up with student loans. And so I thought, you know, her journey in pieces of her is getting past that and becoming an adult. And, you know, unfortunately, there had to be a lot of people murdered in order for her to do that. But that's life. Um, And so I thought, you know, I I really want to talk about the fallout from that. Because that's one thing I like to concentrate on in the books is not the violence, but what comes next and how does that affect you and how does that make you a different type of person? And so that's really what I thought when I was when I read that pilot was maybe there's another story about Andy and Laura that I can tell. uh, And I love using that device of something horrible in the past coming to haunt you. So it really made sense to me to write this book from that perspective, you know, started off with a really bad crime that occurs that's very similar to what we have happening in pieces of her. And how does Andy deal with that? And was it a a tough decision or um, a strange decision for you to to write Andy again to bring her back? It was because, you know, I was talking to my editor about it and I said, the only reason I don't want to do this is because I don't want people to think I'm writing this because the show is coming out. Right. Um, And actually, because of the pandemic, it really set things back. You know, it would have been out before the show uh, or or a couple of I'm sorry, a couple of years after the show. But but the pandemic shut down the shooting and, you know, it delayed everything and they had to move to Australia. And and so, you know, it just kind of happened to work out that that was the book that came out now uh, after the show. Uh, And she said, you know, what she always says, write the book you want to write. Don't worry about it. You know, fuck everybody else. If they they love it, that's great. If they don't, we don't want to hear about it. <laughs> uh, we'll come back and hear about it very shortly, Karen. Uh, David, if I could come to you to talk about Aurora and to get the context of your new novel, uh, we need to know about the Carrington event. So perhaps you could start by explaining that. The um, the Carrington event was uh, in 1859. It was named after the British astronomer who observed it, and it was a, a, a coronal mass ejection from the sun, which is no big deal. They happen constantly they have several a day during periods of high solar activity but and they usually fire off into space and and nothing's heard from them again occasionally they make glancing contact with the earth cause a little bit of a power outage here and there but in 1859 as it does every say one or two hundred years through throughout history uh this this mass of plasma energy hit the earth directly and it, it, it was 1859, so the, the, the ramifications were limited. It lit up the sky in Aurora Borealis that you could see <clears throat> all over the Earth for days on end. Um, and it knocked out telegraph operations because that was the only electrical system at the time. Um, so I, I became curious, you know, as we all think about terrible things that might happen to us, I, I became curious about what would happen in today's modern world uh, if there was a Carrington-level uh, ejection from the sun. But I didn't want to tell, you know, what would be a sort of globe-trotting uh, disaster story um, because we've seen those a million times in movies and read them in books, and they're fun, but it's just not what I wanted to do. Um, I was interested in narrowing the focus to two people um, and one extremely well prepared for some event like this as some people do um, and one completely unprepared and then following their stories as they're as perhaps unexpected things happen to to each of them you know the one who's super prepared watches his life fall apart the one who's unprepared discovers strength she didn't know she had and then I made them siblings because that just makes everything <laughs> <work>. of course <laughs> That's um, Exactly. And uh, we'll talk a a little bit more about it shortly, David. Um, Karen, perhaps you could just um, tell us about Emily Vaughan and set up this new story that Andy's in then for us. Well, Emily Vaughan is a a teenage girl um, and she is part of this group of friends who she realizes very slowly through the book aren't the best friends to have. They're kind of these misfits and they're they're held together by this kind of... um, 
Manson-like figure, uh, uh, but a high school Manson, right? You know, where you get out of high school and you think, wow, that guy was full of shit. I can't believe he was so popular. Um, but she's really in his thrall, and the whole group is. And it just takes one bad act for the group to turn on her. And it's about her trying to survive that and consequently, you know, being pushed out of the group in a really violent way. Because this, you know, my name's Slaughter for a reason. Um, <laughs> but, you know, honestly, it, it seemed um, at the time, I do, I do tend to write about stuff that shouldn't be political, but actually is political. Uh, and one is, you know, this, this young girl who's trapped in a situation where she doesn't have a right to her own body, bodily autonomy, um, which really came to the forefront recently in America with the reversal mm -hmm. of abortion and reproductive rights uh, on the line. So, you know, in, in a way it was really interesting to write because it, her parents are these extremely Reagan Republican type of, of people, you know, country club Republicans, which are, my God, who knew that we would long for those Republicans now, right? But, you know, it just seeing it from her family's perspective and what it does when a girl who's a quote unquote good girl does something bad and how it can really push her out of not just her little clique, but her away from her family, away from everything that she had in her life that she had plans for. Uh, and, you know, she has a, a, a very real connection to Andrea in a lot of ways because the charismatic leader that she followed is the same one that a few years later, uh, Andy's mother had the misfortune of meeting. This, this, may be, this may be slightly off topic, but can I just say um, also, the thing I really admired in your book, Karen, is the 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 mastery with which you're able to bounce between the two stories because I, I i don't give anything away by saying one takes place a while ago one takes place now you find that out early on and it's i having tried that now i'm a neophyte in novels i've been doing movies for a long time but it's only my second novel and i found bouncing between two characters almost overwhelmingly difficult <laughs> it was to know exactly how much to give and to keep us want a track of where we were and fall back neatly into where we were when you go back to the other story. And I, I just thought you did that beautiful. Well, thank you. I, it's really an honor to get that compliment from you, but it, it's something I've had a lot of practice on. I don't know if the first time I did it, I was so great. <laughs> um, but also, you know, I'm, I'm taking a, a shot at writing a script for one of my books and you know, the thing about a novel is you you have one perspective in each chapter. So that's so different from writing a script where I'm just having to constantly remind myself, wait a minute, you can go, you can express this thought or idea through another character and you're not violating that rule about, you know, one perspective. Uh, you know, because sometimes authors in books will have like, you know, a paragraph from one person's perspective and a paragraph from the next person. And, and it just doesn't really work that way. You know, it's kind of breaking a rule, but it's been really hard in a script to think, oh, wait, yeah, I can go to that character's point of view immediately and that's fine. So it, yeah. it's, I'm doing the same thing you are, I guess, but in reverse. What you can't do, which is maddening, is say what anyone is thinking or feeling. Unless <laughs> 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 they say it out loud and who does that? Right. Didn't you say when you wrote Cold Storage that that was one of the great things that you sort of loved about writing it was that you could actually get into the thoughts and feelings of, of the characters? Oh, I was giddy with, uh, <laughs> with with the freedom of it because, you know, movie scripts, you have you have a few tools. You have what an audience might see, what an audience might hear, and that's about it. And I suddenly realised... You know, I, I wrote my first novel, I was in my 50s, so it, 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 I, I, for 35 years I've been doing things a certain way. And I, I realized, wait, I can, I can just talk about the high school chemistry teacher that was so meaningful to her. It, and it, I can digress. I can, then I quickly learned, yeah, digress, just, you know, three pages is okay. But <laughs> <laughs> it was 12 pages on cricket. Nobody wants to read it. Um, so, uh, yeah, the freedom was intoxicating. And in this new thriller, David, it's it's sort of it's a great page turner, but it's made even more chilling, I think, by the fact that 
the events are actually plausible. And is that something that you wanted to play on, having told us already about how the spark for the novel came about? Yes, I think that, you know, there's a certain level of fantasy where you understand this will never happen or this is a world that will never exist, but it's fun and I'll go to it. And there's another kind of fantasy, which is the kind I've always been interested in um, the most, uh, which is what if what if this happened and how can I make it believable? And then how might humans react? I mean, the you know, it's all, I think the most influential show for a lot of people in my generation who wanted to be writers was uh, Rod Serling's original Twilight Zone, um, which was just a collection of great writers saying what if and making it seem terribly plausible. <laughs> That's so true, actually. Yeah, <laughs> A lot of them were, even though I watched them a bit later. Uh, even even then I was like, oh, did this happen? Could it happen? Um, yeah. It was still quite real in my mind. Um, and in terms of ideas, David, because you've, as you said, this is your second novel and many screenplays down, as discussed. When you're thinking of stories, do you instinctively know, oh, that's for the screen, or actually know this could be a future David Capnell? Is there a distinction there? They they just, it's been too long. All movies uh, are, <laughs> see, that's a Freudian slip that'll answer your question. All stories occur to me <laughs> as movies. That's, okay, just, okay. that's just how the brain works. And... Um, with these last with these two books i've found but wait you can tell even if it's a story that might be suited to a movie one day you can tell this story in another way and you know thankfully technology and and it's, it has changed and you know there are other media to tell our story um i wrote something that was an audible because uh, it was an, an impossible length of 60 pages and you know you can't do anything with that it's far too long for a short story and nowhere near long enough for a novel but um, Audible exists, which I guess isn't really new. It's just radio. Um, so, uh, but there, there are lots of places to tell your story. They do occur to me as movies, but then sometimes they bend into something else later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. Um, Karen, I, I mentioned pieces of her being on Netflix. It's this uh, new eight-part series. Um, how has the reaction been so far? Have you sort of been following people know who have been watching it enjoying it or have you just been going well i'm done now well i you know i want people to love it but i have a tendency to only listen to the assholes so okay. over the years i just kind of have divorced myself from it you know i remember yeah. like my first book somebody gave me a one-star review on amazon because the jacket was torn and I was just furious for that. Like for, for weeks, I was furious, like, oh, I need to write that person back. And yeah. it was just one of those things where I just had to step away from it. So, you know, and then another good thing is to rule to have is if you believe the bad stuff, you have to believe the good stuff. And I can't do that. So I just don't pay attention. <laughs> um, but also, you know, my one thing this experience has taught me is my book is my book and the show is the show. Um, and they're, they've actually been filming my Will Trent series, a pilot for that in Atlanta. Mm. And I've kind of kept myself a, a few steps away from it because I'm write, writing a Will Trent book now and I don't want it to interfere because they need to be two really separate things. Because um, I just think it's important, you know, and I, I don't know, David, if you do this, because probably every book you write is an eye toward how you will adapt it maybe. Um, so it's less seamless for you, but for me, I just have to keep them all separate. I don't, um, it, it's only the two, uh, books. <laughs> so it's, uh, but yeah, it, with both, it was impossible to write it and not have the screenwriting part of my brains sort of plotting in the background about how I might do it. But it's interesting cause I'm working on, um, I've adapted a number of other authors novels for, for movies. <clears throat> and I've always felt a ruthless disregard for them. Uh, because I always felt I can't, the only thing I can't do is violate the spirit of the novel. I, I just, the tone and spirit of the novel. But there's such different media that we have to be able to interpret it. And the best, the better movies where the author was then pleased were the ones where we took the most latitudes because we interpreted it and made it good for a movie. Um, I'm working with a director now on the script version of Aurora 
and it's it's different it's different in tone it's different it's just different from the book because it represents her uh point of view as it should and she said does this upset you it's it's changing from the book and i said it it only upsets me if if you go and burn all the copies of the book then that that would really be irritating but the book is the book at least the movie and they as you said karen they're they're separate entities and they have to live that way well and every you know the thing about a, a script though is everyone gets their shake at it, right? So you write it, and then the producer's like, no, change this, and then the, you know, studio, whatever, no, change this. And then, I don't know, Tom Cruise comes along, and he's like, no, change this. So, so, you know, everybody, it's so collaborative, which I fucking hate. Because <laughs> when I write something, I think it's perfect, and I've given it a lot of thought. And, uh, you know, so, I, you know, and it, and that's one reason why I wanted to try to write a script, because I thought, I think you're really an asshole if you tell someone they're doing something wrong, but you don't know how to do it. Um, yeah. Which would change the entire structure of the world if more people did that. Um, so, I, you know, I understand why decisions are made now that, to truncate things or leave characters out or, you know, whatever. But I also think that you should really pay attention to what the readers love about the book. Yes. Um, because that that's there. And, you know, also... That's the, the DNA. That's what worked. That's yeah. the... Yeah. But also plot-wise, like, I work really hard on the plot and make it very tight and very surprising because I read a shit ton of... Um, oh, I should have asked if I could curse. I was just assuming I can. You can. Oh, uh, yes. I mean, too, uh, too late for that now, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, yes. you, can, you absolutely <laughs> can. <laughs> But, you know, I, um, I, I, I read a lot of crime novels, and so I know what, as a reader, you expect, and I try to go in the opposite direction. And, you know, I think that in that regard, following different plot points and twists sometimes, if they're really good in the book, is a, is a better way to go than saying, well, let's come up with our own twist. But then I realize you get somebody like, you know, a, a huge massive star and suddenly they need more of a story so you know it, it just really is interesting to see what you have to change and why you have to change it because it you know and the author has very little to do with that i mean you of course you have more input on that but they're not calling up veronica roth or lee child and saying you know we, we decided to change this little thing is that okay with you because <laughs> that's just not how it happens the few authors I've been in contact with when I'm adapting their work generally don't want to know. They're, you know, because you're onto something else. You know that you can't control it. You can't change it. You can't convince people of things, and it's a waste of time to try. Um, so they generally don't, would rather not know. And how, how many times would you sort of read, if you were adapting a novel, David, how many times would you read that and what would the stages be to get it to screenplay? Or when do you, at what point do you then throw it away and go, right, I'm just concentrating on the script now? After, uh, generally, you know, you read it once without taking any notes or anything to see if you like it. And yeah. <laughs> you have something to contribute. Um, and then the second time is normally because you're thinking, okay, now how, how do I do this? Um, how might this be a movie? And you're taking a few notes. And the third time, um, I actually get out my little note cards and I outline the book as it exists because I want to see how the author did it. Um, and it's fascinating. If you ever take the time to read a book three times and break out your cards and look at the structure of it, which is time-consuming and I don't really <laughs> recommend it, but it's fascinating because the, you start to see oh, I bet that was a struggle, and oh, I see how you did this, and oh, look, at you're clever, you set that up back here. Um, that the, the sort of mystery falls away a little bit. Mm. And then from that, I start uh, trying to compose what I think is a movie outline, which is different. You know, a 120-page script is a lot different from a 400-page novel. They're just obvious um, things that have to be done. Um, I'd say I stop reading the book for a good long while then while I'm doing drafts of the screenplay. And then I give it, if the movie's going, I give it another read uh, before it's too late um, yeah. to see what did I miss that's brilliant? How far afield have we gone? Is there anything 
you know, are there nuggets I can I can still rescue and put in the in the script? Right. Okay. And Karen, are we allowed to know what script you're working on, or is that top secret at the moment? Top secret. <laughs> are you enjoying the process though so, so far well i am but no one's given me any feedback yet okay. other than oh yeah you can do this this is great um okay. you know that kind of stuff that they always say in the beginning <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah wait give it a few more months <laughs> yeah they're not that different from uh you know uh editors in that regard i think um but you know, the, the, the strange thing is I'm a very disciplined writer and I don't really sit around and look at my navel a lot, which I think a lot of they're used to authors doing. So, you know, if I say I'm going to deliver this on Monday, then it's there on Monday and they're shocked. Right. Um, but that's always how I've been. You know, I have to have a deadline and I have to work to that. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, it. I, I, and I also have a book to write and uh, tours to do. So it, this is kind of a luxury to be able to do a side project in this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But deadlines are important, especially when you have all those other things going on as well. You know, you need you need to know you're delivering that then, this yes. part of the book then. It's, you know, so important. Well, mine is more like I've met a lot of people from my various publishing houses around the world and I know exactly who I'm fucking over if I'm like, oh, I'm going to the beach. I'm not going to deliver this, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the translators, the ja people who do the jackets, the marketing, the sales team, the, like thousands of people who can't do their jobs if I don't do my job. And that bothers me. You know, that bothers yeah. me quite a lot. And when I'm tired or whatever, I just think, well, you know. Adam needs to know the gist of the book for the marketing in the UK. So I need to get, you know. Stop watching Netflix and start writing. That's very good of you, Karen. You think well, Adam, about frankly, the Adam doesn't deserve it, but whatever. Yeah, whatever, story. Adam. You yeah. think yourself lucky, Adam. Blimey. That's right. Um, <laughs> before we get some uh, reading recommendations from you both, David, I just um, want to talk about Steven Soderbergh, if I may, very briefly. One of my favourite directors and a very good friend of yours, I believe, of... 30 odd years and until very recently um you hadn't ever worked together but you have collaborated recently on um this hbo film kimmy which came out earlier in this year so how how was that uh it was great we were we were anxious because we tried to work together a couple times <clears throat> over the decades and couldn't yeah there's nothing clicked um and I had this idea uh for a movie and I we were having a drink one night and I told it to him and he said Yes, do that. Uh, Stephen's very funny. There's, there's a one or a zero with Stephen. His response to an idea is always no or hell yes. There's no in between. Uh, so he was very positive about it. So I, you know, it noodled around for a while in my head. And then I wrote it and gave it to him. And he said, yes, let's do this. So he, but we were a little anxious. Will this, it would be nice to come out on the other side with the friendship intact. Because... <laughs> It's been a nice, it's been nice and it's been decades. So, um, and thankfully, uh, we did, it was a very smooth process. He, because he does so much himself, he, he directs, he, you know, he's the director of photography, he edits, yep. um, he has a deal with HBO max that gives him a lot of independence and control. And because of, you know, who he is, his skill and reputation, you know, people tend to not fuck with him. So it, us agreeing on the screenplay was really the only thing that was ever going to be an issue, and we agreed quickly. Um, and so it, it went, it went sort of delightfully smoothly, and we we got to the and the movie turned out very well, I thought. Um, yeah. So we got to the other side and and said, well, that was close. Should we do another one? <laughs> um, I don't know. Currently undecided. Just constantly just trying to test that friendship now uh, with a working relationship. <laughs> I'll write the story of his parents' divorce and see how that goes. <laughs> I always like to ask my guests what they've been reading and enjoying recently before we do the book off. Um, Karen, I know uh, you've got uh, film scripts to write, books to write, tours to do, but I, I know you're also a voracious reader. So is there any anything or anyone you've read recently that you've enjoyed that we should know about? 
Um, well, Jennifer Hillier is one of my favorite authors, and she's got this new book, Things We Do in the Dark. And I don't, mm. I'm, I'm looking at the jacket now trying to, I've got the galley. I don't know when it's coming out. But she also has another novel that's an older one called Jar of Hearts that just was fantastic. So uh, she's one of my favorite, all-time favorites. Um, so I would highly recommend people go back and look at her catalog. And when uh, the next one comes out, I do not know when, enjoy that <laughs> one as well. Fantastic. I think it's a couple of months away here in the UK. Um, but that's all right. We can wait. And there is pre-order available, of course. Um, and David, what about you? Have you been reading and enjoying anything recently? Well, in terms of new stuff, I uh, Blake Crouch, the American science fiction writer, has a mm. terrific book coming called Upgrade. Uh, comes out in July, but, which I just loved. He's wonderfully imaginative, but he's also... You know, he's a he's a humanist writer, and and so it's uh, it, it, there's a lot of a lot of feeling in it too. Um, so upgrade, I'd recommend. Um, and I, I've also gone back lately. I wanted to reread stuff that I read when I was seventeen or eighteen years old, and and see if I still felt the same way and why. Um, so these will these are these are hardly new, but uh, <laughs> I, I tried to. Pick some books that were really formative for me. So I picked, uh, which I rec and I recommend all of them highly. Um, I picked up some Kurt Vonnegut because I was 17 or 18 years old. <laughs> He's brilliant. Uh, Bluebeard was the one I, I, I went with this time. It's great. Um, it moved me as much this time as it did then. Um, and I reread uh, Stephen King's uh, Dance Macabre, which is a sort of a, it's an overview of American horror film and literature uh, that he wrote in the late seventies and he updated in, in, I think 2000 or so. Um, and it's, it's just this comprehensive examination of horror literature and film, uh, what's great, why, and how it affected him. And it's also a writing memoir that sort of pre sages his, um, on writing, which is, is a great book directly about writing. So that's what I've been Fantastic. looking at. Thank you so much. Thanks for both of us. I'm trying to think of the shit I read when I was a kid. And it's <laughs> Lace and um, Thorn Birds. Uh, what else? V.C. Uh, Andrews, Flowers yeah. in the Attic. I was, I was really a, a, a filthy, filthy kid, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. If you look at it again, it's interesting how vividly you remember it. I mean, those years, those late teen, early 20 years, everything's sinking in and sticking yeah. and really forming things. Yeah, I just remember I, I stole my sister's flowers in the attic and she had like already turned the pages down to the good spots. <laughs> the naughty bits? Yes, and uh, <laughs> like they were well-worn. And then I, uh, I was in college taking some class, I don't know, feminism something something, and of course, there was this one guy in there. You can imagine exactly who this guy was, right? And he starts railing against flowers in the attic. And it was like, oh, my God, that's incest. I never realized that. <laughs> it's just like this dawning moment for me. Uh, so that was nice. Yeah. If you're not familiar with flowers in the attic, it's a beautiful love story, but it's also incredibly gross and disgusting. <laughs> oh. Quite a few uh, different recommendations we've had there. Thank you both. Yes. And if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, it's time for another from each of you because it's time now for the book off. This is where each of you is going to tell us about a book that you love that you think we should all read and you have three minutes uninterrupted to do so if you wish to use those three minutes. Now what we usually do here guys, the rules are the person that's travelled the furthest uh, gets to choose whether they go first or second. Now I'm I'm saying that's you David from over there in California. So would you like to go first or would you like to go second? Oh, I've been anxious about this for days. I'd like to go second and postpone my anxiety. Um, I'd like to say that I lied. I'm actually in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Too late now, Karen. Um, uh, Karen, um, as the second choice, you get to decide how you are rudely uh, interrupted at your three-minute mark. Do you want the um, school bell or would you like the bicycle horn? Can you do both? Ooh, I'm not sure anyone's asked me that. For you, yeah. For you, yeah. Okay. I want it all. all you right. want it all. And that means, David, you can have it all as well. All right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All um, right. All right. All right, Karen. So just before we start the three minutes, just tell us the yeah. book that you're putting forward for us. It's Booth by Karen Joy Fowler. Hopefully, I, I never remember author names. Yeah, so um, Google that if you're interested. <laughs> uh, well, it's three minutes on the clock then, Karen, and it's over to you, Uninterrupted, to tell us about Booth. Okay, well, I, when I started reading it, I didn't realize how topical it would be. I mean, I read Manhunt earlier um, a few years ago about the hunt for John Wilkes Booth, and he's the guy who assassinated Lincoln, in case your listeners aren't familiar with American history. Um, so, uh, it's about the Booth family. So John Wilkes Booth was an actor, but I didn't realize he came from a, an entire family of actors and his father was amazingly famous and he lived in England, uh, and he moved the family to America, you know, land of opportunity. And John Wilkes Booth had two other brothers. He had some like 11 siblings, which wasn't unusual then because a lot of them died. Um, but the, the family was really, really into acting, really into Shakespeare. And one of John Wilkes Booth's, uh, brothers actually was credited with bringing Shakespeare into a normative language. You know, they didn't speak it in that stylized way. They spoke Shakespeare's words as if they were communicating with each other at the dinner table. Um, so it, it kind of, it launched his career as this, Shakespearean actor, and he was so popular, he even dined at the White House with Abraham Lincoln. But the really fascinating part to me was about John Wilkes Booth and how he became radicalized. And part of the problem was he was sent to a boarding school with a lot of extremely wealthy plantation class Southerners uh, who were slave owners themselves. And, you know, they told him all about slavery and oh, it's not so bad, you know, the people really want to be enslaved because they wouldn't know what to do otherwise with their time. And so John Wilkes Booth really bought into that whole bullshit story of the, of the plantation class that, you know, this sense of noblesse oblige and we're giving them something to do and there's godless savages. 
And one of uh, the, the real radicalizing moments from him was a, a, a case I had never heard about where some slaves escaped, uh, or, or I should say enslaved people escaped, and they went north to try to find uh, their freedom, and there ended up being a massacre. And that was really something that sparked in John Wilkes Booth. And it, it kind of reminded me of what um, Waco did for Timothy McVeigh, who eventually set off a bomb in the Murrah building and murdered a bunch of people at this federal building in Oklahoma City. Uh, and it really has parallels to what's going on today. I mean, we all have cousins who are radicalized the same way John Wilkes Booth was. Um, and as I'm wrapping this up, because I am timing this too, it's, what's most fascinating is just how freaking stupid these people were. That's the only reason they didn't succeed. Boom, look at that. <laughs> Give me a bit of that. Uh, I see, you got, a, you got your own timer, I see. You're clever, very clever. I do, yeah. <laughs> um, thank you very much for that pitch. Loved it. We're going to come back and talk about it shortly. Uh, it was recommended before as well, that which means it must be a uh, brilliant, brilliant book because um, lots of people are talking about it. Anyway, have a breather, Karen. That was fab. I'm putting three minutes back on the clock for you, David, and just before we start that, uh, tell us the book you're putting forward, please. Uh, I'm also doing Booth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm doing I'm doing the 1954 uh, novel, I Am Legend, by Richard Matheson. Fantastic. All righty, three minutes on the clock uninterrupted, should you wish to use it, to tell us about I Am Legend. Over to you. Okay, if you could interrupt with the uh, the horn thing, but also by shouting, give way. Okay. Would, uh, and I'll feel like I'm in Parliament, so it'll be great. <clears throat> Okay, so I Am Legend is a 1954, uh, technically a horror novel by Richard Matheson. Uh, you, everyone knows of Richard Matheson, even if you think you don't. He's written most, he wrote most of the best Twilight Zones, um, a show I referred to earlier. Um, he was just in a, in, a, in a dozen or more novels that are just brilliant. What Dreams May Come, um, I Am Legend, he wrote uh, Duel, Spielberg's first movie, uh, Richard uh, Matheson's story of the truck and the Dennis Weaver and in the desert, it's just genius. But Matheson, the reason I Am Legend is so powerful to me is because it's, it's, a, it's a humanist horror novel. Um, it's, it's about a vampire plague. I'll get to that in a second. But it's really about uh, human loneliness. It's a last person on earth story and the, the desolation and desperation of a lonely man. Um, he's the last, uh, there's, been a, there's been a plague, uh, which has turned most of the population of the earth into vampires. Um, and what was remarkable about that in 1954 is no one had suggested, he, he completely reinterpreted the vampire myth. <clears throat> Since Bram Stoker, no one had attempted another explanation other than a supernatural one of why vampires exist. And Matheson decided to go into the science of it and suggest that a bacterial infection that became a, a pandemic <clears throat> um, was the reason behind it. And so over the course of this book, uh, this character goes into a lot of research and figures out why and how uh, people became vampires. But in the day, they besiege him and try to kill him. So at night, he, so he has defenses, he's, he's created his home as a fortress, and at night he goes out and, and, and kills them uh, in great numbers. And, uh, but it really, all along, what's pulling us through it is his terrible loneliness. And another character, a woman, shows up third or halfway through the book, and you're just so touched for him, and they connect, and it's just, there's another survivor, and it's beautiful. And you realize that you have a sense early, but you come to realize she's not human, she's one of the vampires, and they've come they've come to figure out who is he, who is this monster that comes out and kills us uh, at night. And what's magnificent about the book is, in, I won't give away its ending, but in the last third, there's a complete shift in perspective of whose story this is, who is the monster, uh, and what is life like for another human being. And I just thought, make work. That was, I thought that was beautiful. <laughs> that was personal. 
Oh, I did that. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I was into. I didn't want to interrupt it, um, so I feel bad. But that is that's the game. Um, brilliantly put, David. Um, coming back to you shortly, Karen. If I can just talk about Booth very quickly. And as I said, this is the mm-hmm. second pitch we've had for Booth. And um, I remember thinking the last time someone spoke about it, I not really know. You know, I'm I'm a bit under read and under knowledgeable about American history, but I certainly didn't really know much more about the Booth family. John Wilkes Booth, sure, we've heard of, um, know a bit maybe about, but um, when you were talking about, you know, the, the family come from sort of acting stock, how uh, how famous they were, you know, what his brother's d- brother did with Shakespeare. And so, I mean, all of that stuff is just magnificent, stuff you wouldn't necessarily learn over here, but actually um, you pick up from this book. So I, I take it's a sort of quite a good history lesson, especially for people like me. Well, and also a lot of Americans. I mean, I said it wasn't successful, but people don't realize that it, the assassination plot was one of many. You mm. know, they they went after the Secretary of State at the time. They wanted to get um, uh, Andrew Johnson, um, and wow. they were really bad at what they did. You know, this one guy went nuts and just started stabbing everybody, and he got caught, and the other guy was drunk and he lost his nerve and you know of course booth he jumps to he jumps from uh the balcony to the stage and he breaks his ankle and he gets mm. caught by that but you know it really was interesting just how the family suffered because of what he did um and some of them you know at first they were all appalled but then yeah. a little later some some other family members became more sympathetic just cuz you know if enough people hate you generally you start to group together and and think that the haters are wrong um mm-hmm. but it really was fascinating to read but i think maybe um um david can speak to this also we americans know so very little about our history like the true history uh, of america mm-hmm. and all the different things that you know, horrible things that have happened. And I mean, we just had Memorial Day and I would guarantee most Americans don't know that it was started by formerly enslaved people who in Charleston dug up a mass grave of Union soldiers and gave them proper Christian burials, right? And that's where Memorial Day comes from. But I guarantee you the vast majority of Americans celebrating that holiday, which honors fallen soldiers have absolutely no idea how that started. Yeah. It's true. And actually, when that the first time I heard that was, I think it was the not long after the, the year after the George Floyd riots. And and uh, the the there was a military figure who was speaking on that subject and trying to tell people how this holiday actually started. And they pulled his microphone um, because, and it, it was just he wasn't particularly radical in his approach. He was just providing a full context of how the holiday began. And, yeah. Whoever was, uh, you know, in charge at the event turned him off rather than hear the truth, which isn't even it, it, it's not a particularly divisive truth. It just happens to be how it started. And it's kind of awesome. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. really amazing that they did that. There's so many stories like that that are lost to history. I think that's why I enjoyed Booth so much, because, mm. you know, I, I knew, OK, he shot Lincoln, wasn't particularly a good shot. So Lincoln suffered. And also a doctor named Mud helped him, which is where we get the phrase, his name is Mud. Because uh, it was, I forget his first name, oh. but Dr. Mud for many, many years. Yeah. Well, his that. name was Mud for helping John Wilkes Booth. Oh, wow. That's great. And also what you said, Karen, of course, um, which I really took from your pitch is that, you know, the parallels of what's going on today, looking back on the story of this family and that assassination, but also just like reading it in 2022 and... The parallels being very, you know, prescient in that sense. Um, but I love that pitch and I, I must read this book because I've heard so much about it now. Um, and David, I Am Legend, wow, what a what a book, eh? Um, and I, I don't think I knew that he wrote Jewel, actually. So this is, I'm learning things all round from these pitches. I didn't know that at all. But I know this book and I love how you sort of said what it really is about you know that yes you could say it's a sort of humanist horror vampire story but it's really about human loneliness and you're absolutely right um and the things that you sort of picked out about it uh i just love you know 
the, the thing that pulls us through the story is his terrible loneliness and that, that sort of connection with who we think is another survivor and everything, you know, the ups and downs of this novel. The fact that, you know, he completely reinterpreted the vampire myth and no one had done that until 1954, until this book came along, you know, just, it's just brilliant. Um, and I absolutely loved it. And I imagine this might be one of those books that you have sort of read and reread quite a bit. I have. I didn't come to it till my late 30s, I think. Mm. I I don't know why I never quite had the penny drop on Matheson, though I loved his stuff without knowing it for decades. Um, What's also also important about the the book is uh, its reinterpretation of uh, vampirism or zombieism as a disease <clears throat> rather than something caused by, you know, something supernatural, that changed everything. If you look at the and and if you look at the current you know, zombie movies of the last fifty years, George Romero openly admitted, "I took this from I Am Legend. This is how I this is how I came up with this idea." Um, I'm not sure how wise that is to say in the press about your, <laughs> about your thing, but I guess he and Madison know. So it was fine, um, but you know. All of that has descended from I Am Legend. Nobody did that before that. So I, I think it's like with Booth and, you know, understanding a bit of the history and where things come from. I think it's also important, you know, with literary and film things. Where did that where did that trend start? Who did that? Where did that idea come from? What We're all building on other people's ideas for thousands of years, but uh, sometimes we don't quite realize what the origin of those ideas was. Yeah, absolutely. I loved both of these pictures and I thought you both did a fabulous job for both books. Um, I can only take one home, though, uh, and that's a toughie. So I'm going to take I Am Legend. I'm going to take I Am Legend because um, I think I took Booth last time, Karen, so that's nothing to do with you, but I think think I'm just balancing it out. Bullshit! (laughs) I was wrong! (laughs) <laughs> but i must read booth honestly i keep i can't tell you how many people are recommending it um but i think for the sheer fact that um of how how much it changed uh i think i am legend uh, has to be taken today uh, but both fabulous books and suggestions and two other fabulous books that i can recommend are aurora by david Cat, which is out now it's published by hq and girl forgotten by karen slaughter which is also out now and it's published by HarperCollins, and you should get these in your hands and read them and enjoy them. Uh, Karen, David, what an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you. Thank you for your recommendations. Thanks for the book off, and very much look forward to seeing you in person when you're over here in little old UK. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.